Well, I want to start with a little intro to the text, and then we're going to read the text. We're reading chapter 9, 1 through 9. But before we get into it, I want you to have your ears, as, as we're reading through it, kind of attuned to the way that Luke is telling the story about Jesus and his apostles. Okay. Um, we all know good storytellers, people who can recount events well. Okay. I'm an okay storyteller. I know that because I've been around good storytellers. Uh, I had a friend who I used to work with at uh, another campus of Reformed Theological Seminary, and he always had wonderful things happen to him, and he would come back and tell us about them. And here's the thing. Uh, you might think he was making them up, but I was sometimes with him when the things happened. <laughs> and I remember someone saying, good things happen to people who can tell about them. Right? And it's true. We would both have the same event. We'd both go to the same fast food restaurant for lunch. He'd come back and tell him a story about what happened there. And I'd say, that did happen. And it was amazing. But I didn't notice it. He noticed it. Because you know, he was a good storyteller. He paid attention. Okay? Some of you are good storytellers. You know how to see the story just right. You know how to give hints at where the story's going way back at the beginning so that when you get to the end, there's this kind of you're sinking together. It all kind of makes sense, okay? Uh, the passage that we're reading here in Luke, Luke chapter 9, is, is an, a passage that shows us how wonderful of a storyteller Luke was and how wonderful of a storyteller the rest of the gospel writers are too because they talk about the same events and yet they emphasize different aspects of it to draw out different realities, different aspects of the reality of Jesus' ministry. So as we're reading Luke 9, I want you to listen to the way he's reminding us of certain parts of Jesus' ministry that he's going to come back to later. He, he's planting little seeds about what's going to happen later. And of course, with Luke, we have to think not just about Luke, but it's Luke-Acts, right? So as we're reading the passage today about the sending out of the apostles, Luke's seeding the story, isn't he? He's preparing us for where the ministry of the followers of Messiah is going to go. So let's read Luke 9, 1 through 9, and then let's go to the Lord in prayer. Luke chapter 9, verse 1. And he, Jesus, called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there, depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you, when you leave the town, shake off the dust of your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about what was happening, and he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. But Herod said, John, I beheaded. But who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come to you in need. We are painfully aware of our need. We need you. We need your presence. We need Christ Jesus and his spirit to indwell us. I pray, Lord, that as we come to this text, that you would give us uh, minds that can understand what it's saying, that you would give us hearts that can rightly hear 
the voice of our Lord as sheep who hear a shepherd's voice. I pray, Lord, that you give us mouths that can respond as we have this morning in praise, hands that can do the work of those who are faithful followers of Messiah, Lord. We need you for that endeavor. Without it, we will accomplish nothing. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this is a, a chapter about turning points in the story of Luke. It's interesting, if, if you go read this in Mark, this passage, or the passage that's talking about these same issues, happens right in the middle of the gospel. Mark kind of hinges on what chapter 9 in Luke will describe. Everything in Mark kind of folds around this. However, for Luke, he's using this passage, the sending out of the 12, and then later, which you'll talk about next week, the, the confession of Peter that Jesus is indeed Christ, that he is indeed Messiah. Luke is going to use that as an introduction to the next section in which he's going to be dealing with Jesus' ministry and the ministry of the apostles. This is a, a turning point, and there's a lot going on. It's a workhorse section. There's a lot going on to move the story forward, but we want to take note of what Luke thinks is important, what Luke, under the inspiration of the Spirit, wants to highlight for us. And so what I want to bring out is just three things that we see happen in verses 1 through 9, okay? Three things we see happen. We see a shift in Jesus' gospel ministry. There's a shift in the ministry that's really not just a shift in what Jesus is doing, but if we go back and we read the Old Testament, we realize there's a shift in redemptive history that's about to happen. There's a shift in how God is saving humanity out of the fall that started all the way back in Genesis, how God is saving humanity, and something's about to change. Something's about to switch. So there's a shift in gospel, in redemptive history. There's also a sharpening. There's a sharpening of the gospel ministry that Jesus has with his, with his apostles. He's sharpening their message. He's honing them down. He's preparing them for a work that they, they may not yet realize is going to be their central life's work, which will be going out to the nations and proclaiming the gospel ministry of Jesus Christ. So there's a shift in redemptive history. There's a, a sharpening of the gospel message. And then lastly... Lastly, we have this shaping up of the Messiah's work, okay? We get to see where the Messiah is going. So far in Luke, we've been getting a picture of who Messiah is. We have Jesus doing these amazing things and teaching these incredible things, and, and people marvel when they see him. They say, who is this? You know, who, can, who can raise somebody from the dead? He just said the little girl was sleeping. <laughs> he raised her from the dead. It's amazing. Who is this? And now we're going to get a shaping. We're going to get a sense of the shape of Messiah's ministry from here on out because it's not what the people around him would have thought. So let's start with the shift, the shift in redemptive history. So far, the Gospel of Luke has been about kind of painting a collage, drawing a, a group of pictures together to sort of make a broader picture of who Messiah is. Everybody would have been waiting for Messiah in Jesus' day. Everybody was waiting for Christ, this, this capital M Messiah, this capital you know, key Christ, who, who was going to come and be anointed for the work of revitalizing the kingdom of Israel through the Davidic reign of David, that through the reign of Messiah. That's what Messiah highlighted, that there was going to be this anointed human who would do this special and remarkable work. This special and remarkable work. That's what Luke's been talking about so far, but now we get a shift. 
There's something that happens here in the opening parts of chapter 9 where Jesus now sits down with his disciples and he says, your job title is about to change. Your job description underneath that job title is about to change. Up until now, you've been disciples. You've been sitting at my feet. You've been hearing me say things. You've been, you've been hearing the stories of my childhood where, where prophets like Simeon and Anna stepped forward and said, here he is, here's the one. What does Simeon say when he sees the, the little child Jesus uh, brought to the temple? He says, here he is, the glory of Israel. Here he is, the light of revelation to the Gentiles. The disciples have been sitting at the feet of Messiah. They've been hearing him teach. They've been formed by him. They've been shaped by him. But Jesus is about to say something different. He's going to say, you're not just disciples for me. You're going to go from being disciples to being apostles. You're going to go from being students who sit at my feet to being apostles who go out and proclaim my message with my power and with my authority. Note that here in this passage, the point is about spreading the name of Jesus, spreading his euangelion, his good news, his good report that the victory of the king is near, that he has arrived, he's back on the scene. It's one thing to note, by the way, they're going out and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they don't yet know about the cross. They don't yet know about Pentecost. What are they proclaiming? We have to assume that they're preaching something like what John the Baptist and Jesus himself was teaching. Repent. Repent, O Israel. You know the law. You know how you've fallen short. You feel as if you've been in a people, you know, walking in the dark of night. Well, now the light has come, right? Isn't that what, what Matthew tells us is the fulfillment of Isaiah 9? Those who walked in darkness, Zebulun and Naphtali in the region of the Galilee, now the sunrise has risen. King is here. Messiah has come. That must be the content of the message that they're teaching. Here he is. The king has come, and they are to go from being learners to being proclaimers, from being disciples to being apostles. They are to go from being those who are absorbing the gospel to those who are preaching out the gospel. What's fascinating about this passage is that it gives us a seed of something we haven't heard yet. We maybe got little glimpses of it back when Simeon said that, right? He's the glory of Israel, and everybody would say, yeah, glory of Israel, right? Just like, just like in Ezekiel when the glory cloud got up and left the temple, now the glory cloud has, has come back and is now settling into the temple again. But notice he doesn't just say that. It's not just the glory of the Lord. It's the light of revelation to the Gentiles. There's something about this gospel message, this euangelion of Jesus that was never meant to be held within you but always had this centrifugal force pulling you out to the nations. And Jesus tells his disciples that too. This was never just about you sitting under me as, as, as Buddha and his disciples under the Bodhi tree, you know, kind of receiving truth. You were supposed to go out and tell others. This is not a mystery religion. This isn't something where if you pay the dues and you hang around long enough, you'll get to the level where we will tell you about our king. This is something we put right on our front door. We put it on our gates and our doorposts and we talk about it as we walk on the way and we tell our children about it when we wake in the morning and we go to bed at night. That's how we think about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not a mystery religion. It's not a secret club. 
was to be proclaimed. I would point out, notice that Jesus gives them power and authority. This is the same language that Luke used back in Luke chapter 4 to describe Jesus' power and authority over the demons. Notice what he's doing. Jesus is saying, I am making you. You're not just just newspaper delivery men reporting the news, right? I am making you like me. I am giving you my power. You are now ambassadors. You're not just reporting a thing. You're like the ambassador who goes to the faraway country and what he says is the word of the Lord. I'm giving you power and authority in your ministry over demons and and diseases. You'll have to take my word for it, but that's work of new creation. What's he doing? He's turning back the effects of the fall, the fall that put the creation under a burden of disease and death and decay. And he sent unclean spirits. There are unclean spirits in the world because of that fall. But what's God doing now? He's doing work of new creation in the sending out of the apostles. They have power over demons and diseases just like Jesus did. And as they go out, the demons fall to them just like they did to Jesus. You you realize that as a follower of Jesus Christ who bears the spirit of Christ, who is temple, as Paul says, because your body, like the old temple of the Old Testament, housed the spirit of God. Your body now houses the spirit of God. And when you come to demons, they should respond like they respond to Jesus. They should say, why have you come to persecute us before the given time? This is not a yin-yang relationship between equal sides of the force or something like that. God has utter and total and complete dominion over the spiritual forces of this world. And Jesus happily, happily conveys that to his apostles. He says, I will be, later, he says, I will be the head, you will be the body. I will be the head, you will be my hands and my feet, the members of my body out in the world doing my work of new creation and proclamation of the gospel. We have to recognize that the apostles are an extension of Jesus' ministry himself. That's how he planned it from the beginning. That's how it was always supposed to be. He's the head. We are the body. You know, it's interesting. I I, I think as we absorb this today in the modern world we sometimes think well lord i how am i supposed to do this it's just so hard how am i supposed to declare the kingdom of jesus christ i wish i lived in second temple jewish times and everybody was waiting for messiah but people aren't like that now they're not asking for those kinds of they're not asking those questions they're not asking for that kind of messiah i would encourage you if you find yourself struggling with this centrifugal aspect of the gospel that it's always pushing us out I'm not saying it's not hard. I think it is. There are some people, by the way, you know, you know who you are, by the way, people, for whom this is very easy. You just do this. You kind of live in this way. It's a part of your personality, and it's easy to do. But for many of us, it's not easy. And I would encourage you to do this. I would encourage you to pray that the Lord gives you a heart of apostolic pro- proclamation. That the Spirit gives you a heart, it transforms you to give you a heart for proclaiming the good news about Jesus to the people around you. But here's this, I wouldn't stop there. I would also pray that the Lord gives you those opportunities. I remember I I regularly teach uh, on the prophets and 
uh, at our seminary, and one of the prophetic passages is about this suffering servant who, who is, uh, it's, it's kind of hard to tell who he, I mean, obviously it's Jesus, but how is it Jesus is kind of the question we ask. And what's interesting is that there's a passage in the New Testament uh, about the suffering servant where this Ethiopic eunuch is reading Isaiah, and he asks Philip, Philip is spirited to this Ethiopic eunuch's side, and he says to Philip, who is this person that the prophet is talking about, this suffering servant? And I say, see, this is a, this is a question going back even even to the apostolic days. Who is suffering servant? How is it Jesus? And I say, wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice if that's how all of our evangelistic opportunities started, <laughs> right? The spirit spirits you to someone's side and they say, can you explain the Bible to me? Okay. Pray for those. Pray for those opportunities. They do happen. I remember this. Is, I was... Um, uh, I remember just uh, not long ago, I, I went into a, a, a barber shop meet to get my hair cut, and the barber had shown up late for the appointment. He was very apologetic, and he was kind of rushed and hurried, and he was starting to cut my hair, and he, you know, he's trying to make conversation. He's apologizing. He goes, so what do you do? What do you do? And I say, well, I, I, you know, it's always a you know, spotty answer, right? I say, well, I teach at a seminary. You know, I teach Old Testament at a seminary, and sometimes people just glaze over, <laughs> okay, and they start talking about the weather, Yeah. You know what he did? I said, I teach Old Testament seminary. He goes, that's, that's fascinating. I have so many questions about the Bible. And I said, ask away, brother. <laughs> I'm here for you. All right, this is our time, okay? Um, pray for those opportunities because that gospel was never meant to just be something you take in and you absorb and you kind of sit on yourself. It's always got that outward focus. And we see that shift happening we see that shift with the, what the prophets were looking forward to, which was the proclamation of the good news, the, 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 the bearers of good tidings, proclaiming from the mountaintops that the restoration has come, that Messiah is here, and that our God reigns. The prophets looked forward to it, but now we see it happening for perhaps the first time as Jesus sends out his apostles. So there's a shift in redemptive history that takes place in this passage. There's also a sharpening of gospel ministry. Notice the sharpening here. Notice, notice the, the, the kind of specific function of the proclamation of the gospel. Jesus starts with this as he sends them out. He gives them this message, take only what you have. Right? Take only what you have. And when you get to a house, the first house you get there, and they, the first house you get to and they receive you in, you stay at that house. I think when he says, stay there until you depart, I think what he's saying there is don't hop around in town trying to get better lodgings, right? The one you go to, the ones who receive you, that's where you stay. I think Jesus is acknowledging there, by the way, for the apostles, he's acknowledging that they will have needs. He's acknowledging that they're going to have to have their needs met, but he's saying you need to trust in the providence of God and the work of the gospel proclamation to supply for your needs. You need to trust in God's providence, his care for you as you go about the work of the gospel. I would encourage you in this too, as you are looking for opportunities, as you're preaching the gospel. Yes, this has a special message for those who are specially ordained and called uh, to these offices. And yet for all Christians, we have this, we have to recognize we all have this call on our hearts and we should ask the Lord, Lord, provide for my needs. Provide for the opening in the conversation. Provide for the, the relational reconciliation that has to happen so that my, my family member can hear me. and They can hear what I'm saying about Jesus. Let me not add to the offense of the gospel. Lord, provide the way. 
I should say, as an aside, when we read this passage in Mark, where he's talking about sending them out, there's a little, there, there, there's, there's an apparent difference in what happens. In Mark, he says, don't take anything except a staff, whereas here he says, don't take anything, not even a staff. The only reason I point to this is because I think there is, there is this kind of assumption out there that there are all these oppositions and paradoxes and contradictions in the gospel by those who are kind of arguing against the faith. I would point out if there is a clear, what seems to be a clear sort of diff, just different language being used, this is it. This is the only place. I would argue all the other ones are kind of easy to, to sort of solve. This is probably one of the most difficult sort of harmonization passages, okay, that we have in the gospels. Seems like Luke clearly says, no staff. Mark says, except a staff. Okay. And how do we make sense of it? It's not that problematic. Obviously, our theology isn't super tied up in it. Uh, there's not something that's going to change your doctrine of the Trinity uh, by how you understand this verse. And yet, it is important for us who take Scripture seriously and receive it as the apostles received it, as the Word of God that is inerrant and true. There's a couple of ways that we could understand it. I would point out it's possible that they're just talking about two different things. You can have a walking staff, but don't, don't take a club that you're supposed to use to kind of defend yourself on the way, right? What is he saying? He's emphasizing this idea of trusting in the Lord. I mean, a walking stick's just a walking stick, okay? Some argue that he's saying don't take more than one walking stick. In other words, don't plan down the road. Just take your immediate needs, that's possible. That might be a, you know, you, you listen, you're in a room fill, filled with people. Jesus is saying multiple things to multiple people. It might be, as Leon Morris says this, he's basically saying, take what you have. And as they were going out the door, right, there are those who have walking sticks. He's like, just take it. That's it. Don't go get anything else. Don't go back to your house. And for those who don't, he says, nope, just keep going. And that would also be in line with what's being said here. He's saying, take what you have. One interesting thing just to point out about the passage, too, is if you notice, Luke gives it as direct speech. He, puts, you know, he doesn't have quotes. There's no quotes in the Greek. But the way he says it is it's a quote, okay? This is what Jesus said. Don't take a staff. Mark doesn't put it in quotes. He gives us a paraphrase of what Jesus says. It's possible that Jesus literally said one thing in the gist, and we can imagine how that's the case. The gist was another. The gist was something like, take what you have. Mark is telling us, he's kind of reporting it through a paraphrase, whereas Luke is giving us a direct quote. What's important here, what's important in all of these discussions, is that there's multiple ways we might understand what's going on behind the scenes. It's not the gospel writers, it's not his interest to try to say it exactly the way the other guy said it. He's giving us an account of what took place. There's multiple ways that we can understand that, just like we might have multiple ways of understanding a conversation that we have today. Both might even be true. I mean, both are true in this case, but both can be true, and yet we say it in a slightly different way. The importance here for this passage, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, go and trust. Trust in the hospitality of the faithful Israelites who receive you to take care of you. Trust in the Lord to provide homes where their ears are open and they take you in and they give you what you need. Now, of course, he doesn't just say how to trust in the Israelites who are there receiving them. He says, there will be those who don't receive you. There will be those who don't receive you. And what he says about them is quite interesting and quite, quite terrible you know, there's a practice in Old Testament Judaism that you have to 
Always be presenting yourself as ceremonially clean so that you can participate in the regular worship of Israel. You have to think about the food that you eat. You have to think about the clothes that you wear. You have to think about your household and, you know, is there fungus in your house and all those kinds of things so that you can know that you're ready to present yourself to temple. One of the things that can render you not ready, that can render you unclean, is that you've interacted with dirty Gentiles who are not participating in the same cleanliness rules and instructions that you are. As a matter of fact, there was a regular practice that when business drew you out of Jewish areas, out of Old Testament Israelite areas, into Gentile areas like the Decapolis, right, where the, you have the man who's amongst all the pigs, right, the, the demon-possessed man. The fact that there's pigs there tells you this is a Gentile region. They've come out of the Gentile region after doing business. What do you do as you leave the Gentile region and return to the holiness of the land of Haaretz, the place that God has given us? What do you do? You wipe the dust off of the sandals that had touched that Gentile ground so as to render yourself as clean. Everything you did under the holiness code had to have this consideration in mind. Is it clean or is it not? Is it clean or is it not? Well, Jesus gives us a new holiness code here. He says, do you want to know about cleanliness? Do you want to know about those who are ceremonially clean for the worship of the living God. The ones who receive you and receive the gospel message, they are the ones who have been made clean. The ones who reject you, yes, even amongst Israel, the ones who reject you, they are the unclean. They are the Gentile who has been given over to their own wicked desires. And that's even true of Israelites, Jesus is saying. This is, a, this is a significant change that's taking place here. They're rendered unclean. Wipe the dust off of your sandals when they reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, there are people who, when they hear the gospel, when, when they hear spiritual discussions, even like this one that we're having this morning, they think, those are important issues. I need to deal with them but I'm going to wait until later. I'm going to put this off until later in life. Yeah, yeah I'm young now. I've got a lot going on. Okay? I'll think about it. These are older people things, right? That's what you do when you have a family. Now you have to figure out about church, right? Or, or my business is happening, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm trying, to, you know, trying to make my hustle so I can get enough money so I can retire early, right? right? Fire, right? Financial independence, reti retire early, something like that, right? Have you heard that language? Um, you know, I got to get things going right now. I'm hustling right now. I don't have time for the gospel of Jesus Christ, but I will one day. Now, let me tell you, I know, I know that there are people who have deathbed conversions. I've seen it happen. I've pastored long enough that I've seen this kind of thing happen. Okay? It's amazing. Praise God that the Spirit of God will appeal to a person's spirit even when they're in the throes of disease and treatments. And you'll see someone come to the gospel who have been hard their whole life. I know that that can happen. But let me, let me offer this as a word of caution. It's not just here. It's in letters like Paul's letter to the Romans where he says, though they knew God, they didn't honor God. And because they didn't honor God, it led them to more hardness. He gave them over to the hardness of their hearts. 
Or let me say, yeah, well, that's okay. That's Paul, but we're talking about Luke. This is Luke's before Paul, right? So let's go back to something that Luke would know about. Think about Isaiah. What's Isaiah called to do back in Isaiah 6 when he's sent out on his mission? He says, what, Lord, should I cry out? And the Lord says, go cry out judgment to the people of Israel. And Isaiah says, well, that's not a good message. I don't want to declare judgment. He says, why, O Lord? How long, O Lord? You never ask how long if it's a good thing, right? When I take my daughters out, we go out to get Chipotle. They don't say, how long, O Lord, will we have to eat this food? They love it. They love eating it. They don't ask how long. Okay, Isaiah says, how long, O Lord, because he says, I don't want to preach this message. Okay. I just gave an ad for a restaurant and a sermon, by the way. I'm sorry about that. Anyways, um, <laughs> okay, I didn't, didn't mean to do that. Um, so, in any case, what, is he, what does he say? How long, O oh Lord? And the Lord says, until the city lies in ruin. Your message of judgment will drive them. It will harden their hearts. Their ears will stop hearing. Their eyes will stop seeing. Let me tell you this, brothers and sisters, if you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and you, think, and you say, I'm not going to accept it now, I, I will in 10 years. Be careful. There is a trajectory of unbelief that can take root and draw you away from the living God, not towards him. What Jesus is telling the apostles here is he's saying, when they reject your word, go wipe the dust off your feet. Don't be one of those households that reject the word of the Lord. Now is the time. So this passage tells us about a shift in redemptive history. It tells us about the sharpening of the gospel. And we'll end with this because this really is transitioning to the, la the next section that you all will discuss next week. It tells us something about the shape of Messiah's work. If this was a movie, you would have this kind of pullback from Jesus saying, go out, I'm giving you power and authority. It would kind of fade to dark and it would fade back in and we'd now be in Herod, the Tetrarch's you know, inner office. And he'd be thinking, talking to some of his counselors about these things. And notice what's happening. He's paying attention. He's noting what this Jesus of Nazareth is doing. And he's raising a couple of options about who this Jesus of Nazareth might be. He's thinking, first of all, this guy sounds like John the Baptist, but I killed John the Baptist. <laughs> he says, maybe, is he maybe Elijah? Of course, he's citing back to a passage that many people in Jesus' day would be aware of out of Malachi chapter 2, verse 23, where Malachi the prophet says, before the restoration comes, before Messiah comes to spread his gospel around the face of the earth, there will be a, a messenger who will come and will declare his coming. And he says, and that guy will be Elijah. Now, it's interesting, as John the Baptist says, I'm not Elijah. When they ask him, is he, are you Elijah? He says, no. <laughs> but later, Jesus, in Matthew 11, 14, go look it up. It's, wonder, it's one of those wonderful little passages on how to interpret the Bible, Old Testament use of the new. Jesus says, if you can receive it, John was Elijah. <laughs> John's not literally Elijah. That's the question he's answering. I'm not the reincarnation of Elijah or something like that. But Jesus goes, he, he's Elijah. He's standing in for what Elijah means. He's the forebearer. He's the forerunner. It's interesting that Herod is asking the same question. Who is this gentleman 
Who is this person in the countryside who is saying these things? Sounds like John. Maybe he's Elijah. Everyone knows that Daniel said it's going to be 70 times 7 before the kingdom of God is restored. And they're all counting it down and you're kind of getting to the general time of Jesus. And so they're all looking for the 490 years. That's why we have people like the ones down in Qumran where we get the Dead Sea Scrolls from who are also talking about the same stuff. And they're anticipating when will Messiah come? And so we get a little glimpse into the conversations that are going on behind the scenes in the halls of power. But Luke, the gifted storyteller, plants that little reminder about what did happen to John the Baptist. And it sets the stage for the direction that the gospel is going to take from here on out. Because Jesus Messiah who comes out of the desert having succeeded everywhere that Israel failed. He's not tempted like the de- by the devil in the desert. He passes through the waters and is declared son of God. He comes out of Egypt, right? We're reading Matt, it's the gospel of Matthew now, but uh, he comes out of Egypt and, 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 and the prophet says, and that was to fulfill, out of Egypt I called my son. Jesus is being the true Israelite. Jesus is marching in to Jerusalem and will he take his place on the throne of David? Will Herod step aside and say, my liege? Now, Jesus will not take his seat on the throne, and we're getting a little hint of it already. But as he draws closer and closer to Jerusalem, it'll become more and more apparent that he's not going to take the throne of David, but that he will take the tree of the accursed, that he'll ascend to the cross for sins he does not deserve to be punished for, just like he passed through that waters of baptism with John the Baptist for sins he did, not, he did not commit, but he passed through the water. Why? He says to fulfill all righteousness. And he will go to the cross and he will die on the cross for the sins of his people so that his righteousness will be imputed upon them that they may not fear but rather be reconciled to the God of life, the Holy One of Israel, as the prophet Isaiah calls him. We can be reconciled and reckoned as clean because Jesus was clean on our behalf. That is the gospel message of Jesus Christ, that this is offered to you, and you can receive it by faith. Be one of those households. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, We pray that by the power of your spirit, we would receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would receive it, that it would take root in our hearts, that we would taste and see that it is good, and that we would respond in the only way that is appropriate, by proclaiming worship to you and proclaiming that same gospel to those around us in the world. We give thanks that Jesus was not satisfied to leave the gospel in Jerusalem, but to take it around the face of the earth so even people like us can be declaring in this year, can be declaring the praise of the Lord God Almighty. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.